Hi, welcome to a new episode of Engineering Rebuild. Do you think you know a lot about construction? Maybe we can provide a fresh perspective. This is a podcast where we rebuild preconceptions of engineering. Reclaim the narrative. And share the voices of women from across the construction industry. Why not join us? Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Engineering Rebuilt podcast. I'm your host Yvonne Raleigh and together with Lena Soderberg we will be joined today by the brilliant and amazing Olivia Perkins. Olivia, why don't you tell us something about yourself? Gosh, okay. Uh, thank you very much and thank you for having me today. Um, so yes, I'm Olivia Perkins. I'm a civil engineer by trade. I always like to, to put it that way. Um, so I have been in the industry for sort of, I don't know, getting on for 15 years now. I studied civil engineering at Loughborough University. Uh, my path into engineering was not overly planned, it just seemed like a good thing to do at that point in time. I think if I thought about it a little bit more, uh, perhaps I would have chosen a different path, well I say that now, but um, actually now I, I really enjoy this industry. Um, in terms of projects I've worked on, I've worked on uh, Crossrail uh, and High Speed 2 and uh, one of my more recent projects was a project in Luton uh, called the Luton Dark, connecting uh, the train station to the airport, um, which was a really good and diverse engineering project. In terms of my career, I have uh, mixed it up a little bit. I've worked throughout the project life cycle, um, but I've also taken time out of being a civil engineer. I worked in uh, my corporate strategy team of my previous business, uh, looking at business projects uh, about how we could do things better. Um, at the time, things like Brexit, workforce planning, marketing, um, and doing things like that and making a career in this industry, bringing it with it lots of variety has is, is been a real joy, I think, as part of my career so far, the fact that I've, I've mixed things up a little bit. So these days, I, I'm now a, an area director responsible for a number of projects. So once again, sort of trying sort of a different aspect of the industry. That's me in a nutshell, I think. Amazing. Uh, that's that's really, really cool. Um, I think it sounds like you've worked on some of the really big infrastructure projects that are happening at the moment and a lot of um, a lot of exciting infrastructure projects as well. How come um, how come that's what you've been interested in or what you've chosen to focus on in the industry by accident or by choice? And what do you like about it? Initially, it was by accident, um, and then I guess more so it's then become by choice, but actually I've, I've come away from that a little bit at the moment. Um, when I was studying at university, I did work placements 
as many work placements as I could get myself into. Um, one, to help pay for university, but two, also to just give me a taste of the industry. And it's something I'd recommend to anyone who's studying civil engineering is to make sure you get your work placements. But where I'm going with that is actually my work placements were mainly in construction and building. And the one thing that that taught me was actually I didn't really like building very much. Um, and when I graduated, uh, it was during the recession and luckily, or I'm, uh, I guess that's the way to put it, um, essentially they couldn't take me at that period of time. Ordinarily, I would have gone straight back to work for that business, but there wasn't the opportunity and our infrastructure business of the, the business I was in had an opportunity um, and I went for it. And just by chance, they placed me on uh, the Crossrail tenders at that point in time. And, and from there on in, I, I went into the Crossrail project and never looked back. It was a fantastic experience. It's funny that how often things happen um, like by accident more than by choice. Um, I think I um, figured out I wanted to be an engineer and then looked at all the Wikipedia pages about different types of engineering and then kind of picked one at, by chance. And then when I got to university, realized that maybe it wasn't the right one and <laughs> ended up slightly like changing paths towards civil engineering from, from where I'd started. But yeah. That's kind of why I added that in because it seems like um, you ask people why they chose what they do and a lot of them didn't choose it in the first place. They just kind of, it, it happens the way it happens, doesn't it, Yvonne? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When, when I left um, university, I didn't even know there was a difference between consultants and contractors. I went to um, the Royal Military College of Science. Um, so I went, to, I was at college with 3,000 guys from the military and 20 civilians effectively. Um, it was a really interesting kind of collaboration between Cranfield University and and the military, but it gave a very, very different view of what construction was about. I and mean, we learned a lot about emergency engineering and about um, explosives engineering and stuff like that. So when I um, talk about joining the industry in the recession, Olivia. I joined the industry in the recession in the 90s, at uh, the beginning of the 90s. Uh, we always seem to be in recession. Um, and I, I wrote 150 applications to just about any business that had construction related topics, um, from everything from sort of water industry right the way through. And when I landed a place um, with, with Molem, uh, as they were then on the M25, I had no idea what a site engineer did. I literally turned up on day one and I had no idea what the role was um, and actually found I loved it, which was really, really bizarre because it could have gone so horribly wrong from the position I was in. I, I did no work placements because I was... Um, I worked at the college during the holidays because it gave me an opportunity to earn a bit more money and pay my bills and uh, live on a subsidised rate on the base. So it was it was a much easier route in. Uh, but it meant I was totally unprepared for the industry I joined. Um, but I'm still here 28 years on, so it kind of gone so badly. I, I agree with you. It's at school, my A-levels were maths and physics, so that's the engineering bit, but I had uh, history and psychology. And history was my passion, um, and I really wanted to do that, but I realised oh, I can't really do a career with history. I don't know, what do you do with history? 
Um, it's more of an interest. And it was a careers teacher who said, if you thought about engineering, and it was going, oh, yeah, that would do without much thought. Um, and, and ended up, as you say, kind of falling into it. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is that we, we talk about it so much, don't we? But there's so there's such a lack of visibility of what engineers do. Yes, there's a few tele, like small television programs, but they don't really get into the crux of what an engineer does. Everyone knows what a doctor does, a lawyer does, a policeman does, because there's there's TV series galore giving you insight to that. Um, but you don't get that with this industry. We're, we're fortunate as a collective that actually we found that we enjoy this industry, but unfortunately there are some people who come into it and realise actually it's not for them. And it's how, how do we get kind of that awareness out a little bit more, I think, is, is one of the big challenges. What do civil engineers do, Olivia, then? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, as you say, kind of between working as a contractor and consultant, that can be a very different answer. And even between contractors and different projects, that answer is so different because it, it calls for uh, so many different kind of skills, I think, between those different elements. But as a civil engineer for me, very crudely, when I started, it was, uh, it was all about setting out, planning works, developing solutions. Again, I was quite fortunate in terms of the opportunities that I was given that I worked with the project director on um, our project on Crossrail to find value engineering solutions to actually build things more efficiently and safely and uh, making uh, essentially our temporary works more efficient. And so really got into the crux of actually how do we build the best value project for our client safely, economically, sustainably, um, which is really, for me, what I think engineering is all about, trying to find kind of the best value solutions. Again, kind of giving tangible examples of that is quite a challenge until you're in a specific project and you can see what the challenges are and also whether our clients, consultants, what have you, want to join that journey also. Um, the, the, one of the biggest things I think we have about working in the industry and being an engineer is, is actually the technical bit's only half of the challenge. The social bit, behaviour bit, the bringing everyone along the same journey is the other half of the challenge. It's all about the team and the people and how you get everyone, as I say, pulling in the same direction. And that's what you don't necessarily get taught at university, those, those people skills. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot about um, like the technical, um, the technical objective things that can just be like right or wrong, whereas then you get out into the industry and there's so many versions and so many people and so many like different parameters to balance that it's hard to find something that's uh, without a shadow of a doubt, the absolute best way to approach something uh, and to have everybody on the same page at the same time. And the, the trouble is that best way bit is subjective. As much as we all think that engineering gives you a single best solution, actually there's a, um, it's, it's subjective. People will have different views on what best value, best opportunity means. Um, 
My personal kind of approach to that is I always think, especially with infrastructure projects, we're building these for the public, um, often taxpayers' money. Um, that doesn't mean build the cheapest solution right here, right now, but it's actually what's the best solution kind of that will meet the public's needs for the period of time of that project. Um, and also for the people working on it, yeah, as I said, safest, sustainable, all those kind of good things. But yeah, what drives people's opinions on that is very different. And again, that's that's part of the challenge, getting to the root of what's driving all of these different individuals to, as I say, get them along on, on a singular journey. Now, I, w- I was just going to um, say that actually that's part of the reason why we need diverse teams. I know I keep harping back to this, and Lena's heard this before, <laughs> but if if... There is no single solution. The best solution is the one that's created by the most diverse group of people because they all bring not necessarily diverse in in terms of any particular kind of attribute, but the the greater diversity of of understanding of engineering, the the different types of engineering, the different backgrounds of people, all of those things bring different perspectives on solutions and that in itself creates a better solution a better overarching solution because everybody can their their viewpoints can be considered yeah i agree with you there's so many examples aren't there not just in engineering and science um, and other streams that have not considered diversity in their research or solution and unfortunately it's just meant that essentially that the, the output has been directed to a very single group of people, which is not what we need. So as you say, it's all about having diverse teams will help influence that. It, it is, I kind of always refer to construction as a, a team sport. You cannot build these projects on your own. It is a team sport. You need to have um, that group of people together. And as you say, everyone, but having a diverse group uh, makes that even better. It makes it a much richer experience, um, and the output from that will will be hopefully the best possible solution. How do we get a wider range of people into the industry? Gosh, the amount of times I've been asked. Um, if I could answer that question, I probably wouldn't be here today. I'd be sort of unknown. Um, we, well, we wouldn't have this problem necessarily. How do we get more people in? Uh, I go back to the sort of one, as I've talked about earlier, visibility is one piece, making people aware of the industry, what we do. Um, And I know that there's so many industry bodies that are trying to work in that space. And I'm sure um, that all of us have been in schools at some point in time doing talks uh, to children to kind of make them more aware of the industry. so, so one bit is just as hard as we can, just increase the visibility in the industry and what we do and push the piece about we're an industry that makes a difference. I think that gets lost um, quite a lot of the time. I, has, I don't hesitate to say, actually, our, our industry doesn't have the best image. In fact, I'd say it's got a bit of an image problem. It's often beset by projects that run over budget, run over time and um unfortunately that's that's the stuff that gets spread across the media it's not necessarily sold as an industry that actually 
if it wasn't for infrastructure especially and well construction too we wouldn't have homes we wouldn't have water we wouldn't have power it is the industry that essentially makes our lives function and the more we get that message out about making a difference i think that in itself attracts a greater level of diversity i think the younger generations especially are more driven by kind of purpose as much by money or, or anything like that it's there's there's no silver bullet i think to to increasing diversity i think it's it's as i say just trying to improve our message and our image um and and then there's this circular piece isn't there that the more diversity we get into the industry that in itself should breed greater diversity um but uh, yeah it's the chicken and the egg how do you get that bit in in the first place yeah because the, the first problem is getting pe people in and then the second problem is getting them to stay but before that um what you said made me think of how bad we are at like at um self promotion in in the industry or talking about the good things that we do i was on a site visit recently where another civil engineer said that um that if you look up the def uh, if you look up the definition of, of boring in the dictionary then the answer you get is a civil engineer <laughs> it's just ridiculous because it's like you go to these sites that you got you actually like if you have the chance to see what we do on our construction sites and and i have a construction bias because that's where i spent most of my time or in, sorry infrastructure bias um because that's where i spent most of my time but if you go in and you look at the things that we're doing it's so cool like tunnel boring machines so cool bridges so cool big bridge lifts like all these things it's so impressive and we just don't seem to be able to tell anybody about it or get anybody else excited about it um, but it just seems like such a missed opportunity. Um, yeah, I'd agree with you on that. On my last project at Luton, we drove a bridge down a road <laughs> and put it in over a weekend. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> but again, you don't get that message out. All people knew in Luton was, oh, the road up to the airport shut for the weekend. How annoying. And it's, yeah, we, we needed to do better in terms of, uh, there was actually quite a lot of good kind of uh, media that went out about it, but we could do a lot better. But uh, we must consider also that, yeah, not every project is a bridge, a tunnel. There's a lot of infrastructure that's actually smaller and fiddly. Needless to say, it equivalently makes such a massive difference, but it depends what your interest is in and again it's just that range of opportunities that are available um that are in the industry that we we could do better with creating awareness of yeah i mean i, I think the, the problem that we have is that a we don't sell ourselves very well but i mean that's probably because the people doing the marketing um all have quite a older view of this maybe um i don't, <laughs> I don't wanna, I mean, if we look at the institutions a lot of the institutions that represent civil engineering are led by quite a a um esteemed set of representatives of our industry and perhaps they don't remember the excitement of being on the ground the excitement of doing the stuff that we do i mean some of the stuff that that lena's talking about bridge works and things like that those projects really spark in imagination and enthusiasm in, in young people. Um, do utilities spark imagination and enthusiasm? 
Possibly not, but do they care about the speed of their broadband? And are we responsible for the speed of their broadband? Absolutely, we are. And those things, it's about repackaging and reselling what we do so that we draw people in by giving them the highlights. I mean, yeah, the industry does dig holes in the ground. Hell, we dig holes in the ground. I dug some really big holes in the ground. I was there when we did Cutty Sark Box. Um, a long, long time ago for um, Dock and Light Railway Extension. Those those kind of projects still happen every day. High Speed 2 is going to create a load more of those opportunities where we can show just how cool the industry is. And the number and diversity of roles within the industry that just about anybody can join the industry doing just about anything and find a place within the industry. And I think that's the most interesting thing. You don't have to be an engineer to join the industry. You can be a, a geography graduate or an ecology graduate or an environmental scientist, and you can still find a space. You could probably be a historian, to be fair. You still find a place within the industry where you fit. And I think the more we make it clear to people that there is that diversity, it's not just about being an engineer and, and building things, but there's all of that diverse team that goes with that, then the, the easier it is to bring more people into the industry. Um, I mean, I'm not a typical engineer. Um, I want you to be a doctor. Uh, I fell into engineering by mistake um, because I failed my A-levels. Oh, hey, okay, guys, I admit it. Um, so I shoved a pin in the paper. I mean, a, a, two, a D and two Cs was not where I was supposed to be going when I was estimated an A and two Bs. But yeah, I mean, that's the way the world works. It, But it meant that I looked at a subject that I would never have looked at before. And when I looked at it, I realized that actually it was just exactly what I wanted. Um and that was exactly where I fitted and and I still fit and I still love the industry today. And that that's, I mean, there's not many people that stay in an industry for 30 years and are still loving it at the end of 30 years. Um, but the, in the construction industry, that's quite common. So we must be doing something right. You're, you're definitely right there. Most people stay in the industry for life, don't they? Um, although the interesting, you made a, a slight point earlier, Lena, about kind of retention. Um, and that is one of the big challenges going back to the diversity piece is sort of the, the people who stay in the industry are the, the traditional lists, if I put it that way. Um, the people we lose out of the industry are the ones that we're, we're wanting to retain because the industry doesn't work for them anymore in terms of how it functions, the, the working hours, the working practices. And so going back once again to your question about kind of what can the industry do, that we need to think a little bit more fundamentally about the way we work and make it more accessible, I guess, for people from all backgrounds um, and not uh, bias people's opportunities as a result if it's not accessible. So that makes sense. I'm perhaps <laughs> being a little bit vague with my, my question, my response there. No, I completely agree. And I think it's really hard because I think you only know your own experience or what other people tell you of, of their experience. And sometimes I feel like we cater the whole environment to the majority or the average. And 
Um, what we need to do is actually tailor it to the people who we want in rather than the people that we've already got. Um, and hard to do that. Um, but I guess so my question would be, um, what are a couple things you think we could do differently that would make it better or that would keep more of those people in that we're struggling to retain? So there's a couple of very kind of basic things um, and some of those um, uh, have happened almost in the last couple of years off the back of COVID in terms of agile working, um, allowing people to work remotely, um, embracing and trusting our staff to work remotely um, in certain roles. So yeah, policies around adaptable working family-friendly policies also. I know most of the major tier one companies have, have thoroughly kind of self-searched and, and rewritten their family-friendly policies around maternity, paternity um, and all other elements around um, the, those kind of facts of life to do with sort of miscarriage and adoption. I, I know that those kind of things are coming into that space. But for me, there's a more fundamental issue in how we procure projects in this country doesn't necessarily then promote the best way of delivering projects in the future um, sort of the highly competitive nature of how we procure projects high risk low margins although we talk uh, sort of going into the, the sort of specifics a little bit in terms of how projects are awarded there's there's a high place put on technical um, questions to make sure that they're receiving the best solution but in reality the commercial factor even if it's a small percentage of the bid still can quite largely significant and um, sorry largely influence essentially the award of the project and where i'm getting to with this is essentially we're, we're signing up to try and deliver jobs in ways that in reality once we get to it aren't necessarily the most practical sort of need especially with infrastructure projects 24 7 working um, working uh, in remote locations and um, not considering how we set up projects in the best way to make them accessible. I, I, I don't have a single answer for that, but for example, when I was working, I did a short stint working in France and uh, what I found really interesting was they were doing a tunneling project in the centre of Paris and every Friday they turned off the TVM and they restarted it every Monday. And you wouldn't do that in this country because people think you need to do it 24-7 because that's the best way. But actually, you, there are other ways of delivering major infrastructure projects that address kind of making sure, again, it's uh, they're not driving everyone um, to despair or, or causing issues around fatigue. So I haven't got a strict answer in terms of the procurement piece, how to do that better. But it's not working, is it, in terms of the fact that we're needing to, the, the procurement approach doesn't necessarily deliver best solutions. It delivers kind of people who are willing to commit to kind of the hardest and fastest terms at that point in time, which will then put pressure on the teams trying to deliver them. And then once you put the pressure on those teams, that's when you're impacting the ability for all those people working on those teams to work on it and deliver it in a, in a way that's accessible. Yeah. And, um, it's in, I, I agree with that and I think that's a really interesting perspective to, to think, okay, actually maybe we need to take a step back and, and, and rethink things from a bigger 
perspective than like individual small changes that we can make. I also think it's interesting because what you're describing is we're um we're going for I don't know if I'm gonna say this in the right way, but like but we're going for the the fastest, most intense, um most yeah, fastest, most intense way of achieving something. But then in the process we're ending up with this massive skills shortage and we can't get the people to fill the roles to do it that fastest, most intense way. So is it actually uh, not even thinking about the whole diversity and inclusion piece? But if, if we can't get people to fill the roles to deliver, to deliver in that way, then are we setting just completely unrealistic expectations maybe in the first place? I don't know if that's an extreme way of looking at it, but, but fundamentally um, we need... We need people to do the work, so it needs to be procured and delivered in a way where you can get people to do those jobs. And we call it efficiency. I mean, that's what the industry calls it, an efficient solution. But actually what an efficient solution is, is one that eats up humans. I mean, a program efficient solution isn't a, isn't a solution that thinks about the well-being of staff. A program efficient solution is one that delivers the project in the fastest time for the least money. And that isn't the right solution for the workforce delivering it probably isn't the right solution for the people living around the project either i mean if if you said to everybody okay actually your kids are going to be out of sleep at the weekend because we're not going to make any noise at all forget noise limits of 67 decibels and we won't go above that at 10 o'clock at night um but actually saying we respect the neighborhood and we're not going to do those works at night we're not going to do those works at the weekend we are going to think about the well-being of our staff and the communities we work in. The solutions we created would be much, would be different to the solutions that are currently created. At the moment, the, the solutions that are created focus on the money that is spent by clients and the program that we deliver um, and not on the communities that we work within or the people that deliver the project. So I think that's a good opportunity to ask um, we have one question that we ask every time we do the podcast, and it is, what would you like to see different in the industry in five years' time? Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I was listening to the other podcast, so I had to think about this one. But So it sounds a bit facetious, but I'd like to not be talking about diversity anymore. That, that would be the great place to get to in that actually we've got to a normal position where it's not a topic. Because throughout my career, I've been asked, what's it like being a woman engineer? Not what's it like being an engineer. <laughs> what's it like being a woman engineer? It's, it's okay. So <laughs> enjoy it. It'd be nice not to have to talk about it anymore, that essentially we've achieved diversity um, in a sense. I don't think we'll ever get to a place where we're 50-50 or fully representative of society. Um, but essentially to be in a much better place. And for me, it's as so the diversity is kind of the outcome. It's about the inclusive behaviours. How do we get to a point that our behaviours are a lot more with the 21st century and that we treat everyone equally with respect? Uh, we take on board the ideas of all the people in the room. For me, part of the challenges with inclusive behaviours is actually getting people to acknowledge kind of all the voices that are in a meeting. Um, there's a lot of unconscious bias in not doing that and how, how do we get that 
improved to make sure that yes we're not having to talk about this anymore um, and going back to the procurement piece I think yeah it would be nice to see the industry looking at ways to bring these projects into being in a better place that again means that we're not having to talk about diversity in the same way so going back to your point earlier you know about the kind of skill shortages I, I genuinely think we are approaching if not at the cliff edge of a serious issue where we've we've got these major projects coming to market right now but we do not have the people to deliver them and the challenges that we've got with material inflation um, labor inflation all that kind of stuff is not just because of what's happened within the wider worldwide landscape it's because there aren't the people who want to come and deliver these projects necessarily anymore or just the, the quantum and, and what have you and so we, we need to think about how we bring these projects to market better to make the industry a better place and more diverse place yeah i completely agree Yvonne, do you have any um final points no i mean that that that's the the solution isn't it i mean if we've got a skill shortage and we're only using half the population um or only drawing from half the population generally um then it's fairly obvious where the skill shortage could be addressed um so it doesn't take a rocket scientist as we keep saying to uh, to work out that actually there's a really simple solution to this um women can lay bricks women can can drive tunnel boring machines, women can be engineers, women can be directors. Oh, hell, look, um, there's two of them on the call. Um, yeah, I mean, women can do anything that men can do um, and do it just as well. And the time has come for people to stop saying that this is a man's job or a woman's job. There are no men's jobs. Just like clothes, there is no gender to, to careers. I mean, careers can be anything people want them to be and we need to get to a point where people realize that i think um yeah i, I completely agree with that i think um another thing so when i started working in the industry i think it took something like it took over a year before i met a woman in an engineering position who was more senior than i was like somebody who was actually had been where I was before who was ahead of me and so um yeah just just being on this podcast and speaking to both you Olivia and Yvonne at the same time and having conversations with women who are role models because they've done more and they've made it further and they haven't left like for me that helps me stay in this industry um so yeah thank you that seems like a a great place to uh, wrap up a really interesting conversation thank you for listening to this episode of engineering rebuilt we hope you enjoyed being part of the conversation please join us next time to hear more diverse stories from people who are reclaiming their narrative to rebuild engineering